Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And this morning we'll be looking at verse 22, probably to verse 26, uh, even though I said verse 31. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. As you're turning there, let me have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we meet today, and as we break open the word of God, I pray, Lord, that you would show us the things that you want us to see, the things that are most important for our life. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to um, live them out. And I thank you, Lord, for the great sacrifice that you accomplished and completed on our behalf. For all those who have called upon you as their Lord and Savior, you truly are their Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would just, just show us this morning the things that are important on your heart so it would be important in our life. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last, again, last time that I, we were looking at this text, we are in the Passion Week. Uh, we're looking very, um, we're going to look very quickly at the sufferings of Jesus Christ, um, where he eventually will go to the cross. Um, and of course, at this time in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Israel, there's many, many different opinions about Jesus. Uh, There's many responses to Jesus, some of unbelief, some of hatred, some of wonder, some of confusion, um, and many other things. Um, But as we think about that, we have to realize that There are many different opinions even today, many, many years separated from that time. However, in Scripture, Jesus didn't leave us with many options as to who he is. He does not allow us to think that he was just a good teacher or a person who had a moral character and should be a moral model. It was C.S. Lewis in his book, if you haven't read it yet, you probably should, it's called Mere Christianity, great book. He was a a Cambridge, Cambridge University professor, and he was a former atheist, a staunch atheist. He observed this unusual mindset that happens when people talk about Jesus. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And it's this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to God, to be God. And he writes, Lewis, 
This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man said and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg. Or else, he would be the devil of hell. He says, you must not make this mistake, and you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fuel, or you can shut him up for, a f- for being a f- fool. You can spit at him. You can even kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left us with this option. He didn't intend to in Scripture. And if anybody's honest with reading Scripture, you actually have to honestly come away, whether you believe it or not, saying that there is something very special about Jesus Christ. That he is not just a man. He is more than a man. He is God. You must do that in the honest reading of Scripture. And especially when Scripture's passages like when Jesus said to, I believe it was, uh, when, he, when he said in Scripture, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. See, that is a very uh, specific, narrow Scripture that tells us what God intends for anyone to be saved or to go into the presence of the Father. All right, so what day are we on in the Passion Week? Well, we are into Thursday of the Passion Week. And in our text and from the text last week, Jesus unlocks the meaning of his death by connecting it to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover, where it says up in verse number 12, Uh, on the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. The first of uh, the seven-day feast was Thursday afternoon, as I've been saying, the 14th of either March or April, when the lambs were slaughtered and a year-old unblemished male lamb or goat was ritually sacrificed in the temple, uh, one lamb for each extended household. Actually, the Passover feast and the eating of the Passover lamb were to be celebrated by the Jews. The meal, the meals were to be eaten uh, in family gatherings in private homes, and families removed all the leaven or the yeast from their homes, and the women would prepare herbs and wine and unleavened bread for the Passover meal that evening uh, on the twilight of the 14th of March or April. And then, of course, in verse 22, it says, while they were eating, all right? So they were already into 
the Passover meal. Now, this was this is referred to actually as the, between the fifth and the seventh stage of the Passover ceremonial. That means the disciples and Jesus were well into it, into the Passover feast, and they were nearing its conclusion. It was late in the evening, and um, so now certain things are going to take place. Jesus is going to do something really new with this Passover celebration. And so let me, it'd be probably good for me just to uh, give you a review of the script of the eight stages of the Passover meal that was actually, that takes place within a Jewish family celebrating the Passover. Even today, these stages are actually kind of acted out, and, and yet they're important to our context because we do know that this is at the end of the Passover meal. And so here are some of the stages. Now, within the stages, the eight stages, there are four parts. Uh, there are four cups of wine, and there are four promises that are given by God. So let me look at the first one. I want you to take your Bibles quickly and turn to Exodus, Genesis The first book of the Bible, Exodus being the second in our Bible. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5. And it says in verse number 5, and of course this would be the first stage. Uh, The first stage would have a couple parts to it. The first one would being that there would be the blessing of the red wine followed by the first cup of wine passed, and then it would be drunk by everybody. All right, so the first cup of wine would be the cup of remembrance, and it says in verse number 5, Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptian, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So the first thing the Lord promises is that I will remember my covenant. And then in verse number six, it says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the first part of verse number six, we see that the Lord promised them, promises the Israelites he's going to rescue them. Right, so they would be uh, in this first stage thinking about God rescuing them and God remembering, knowing their condition and remembering them and then doing something about it. So he promises that he's going to deliver them. All right, the second stage would be that the bitter herbs uh, called the Hazaret and then the fruit would be called the Haroset and the roasted lamb would be brought in, and of course the bitter herbs would be usually dipped in salt water to make them even more bitter, all right? And then, of course, the bitter herbs dipped in a fruit sauce also was eaten, and then a question was asked about the meaning of this particular festival. And of course, one of the sons, probably the oldest son, uh, would ask the question to his father, and the question would simply be... What does this rite mean? What does this feast mean? And so that would lead to someone giving the meaning of the Passover, which would lead to phase or 
stage number three. And if you turn to Exodus 12, in verse, verse number 26, it tells us in verse 26, and this, of course, the father would say, in verse 26, and when your children say to you, what, did this, what does this right mean to you? Verse 27, you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. So after the son's question, it would be explained what was really going on. And then, of course, uh, in chapter 13, verse number 8, again, it says, you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So the stress would be, specifically on God remembering them, and then, of course, the Lord in the first promise saying, I will bring you out from them. And then, of course, the son would ask the question and the father would answer the question. And then, of course, uh, the first cup of wine uh, would be passed around and they would sing part of a psalm, Psalm actually Psalm 113, through Psalm 18, it's called the Hillel Psalms, all right, or the praise Psalms, and they would give praise in all kinds of different ways to the Lord uh, about what God had done for them. And then it would move in, now this is all on the evening, remember, this is on the evening of a Thursday, uh, right before uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This was the Lord taking the Passover feast and connecting it to the Lord's table. Right? That's what he's doing here, and that's why he picked this occasion, because they have similar meanings to it and connections to them. All right, so then in the fourth stage, there would be a second cup of wine that is drunk, and that's back in Exodus chapter 6, the second part of verse 6. Uh, it says there in verse 6, and I will deliver you from their bondage. All right, so this... Second cup is also connected with the promise, and the promise is, I will deliver you from bondage. That's freedom from slavery, and that would be the slavery that they experienced under Pharaoh in Egypt, all right? So that would be the second promise, and it would be the fourth stage. And then there would be a third part and a fifth stage, and this would be when the second cup was actually passed, and the unleavened bread is now blessed and broken, distributed, and eaten with, eaten with the herbs and fruit. At uh, as the father explains the meaning of the bread and the bitter herbs and the and sweet, the sweetness is mixed together to provoke a bitter sweet remembrance from of slavery and also a freedom of. Uh, and, of course, all under the hand of God. And then at the sixth stage, the fifth, sixth, and seventh stage, we see the meal proper. That's when they actually took the roasted lamb and ate it. And they were, remember, to eat it as a family unit. They were to eat it completely. Um, they were not to have leftovers and eat it the next day. If anything was left over, it was to be completely burned. All right, so the, so the people 
uh, had in, in their mind that this is, this is what God laid down in Exodus chapter 12 about how it's actually going to take place. In fact, if you're still there in Exodus, notice in verse number chapter 12, verse number 3, where it gives the breakdown of this eating. In verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are to each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Then verse 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a one-year-old. You may, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. And verse 7, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the door, the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 8, it says, they shall eat the flesh that same night, roast it with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roast it with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left until morning, it shall be burned with fire. And verse 11, now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins gird, girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So from this passage, we can see the meal was to be eaten until nothing was left, and the meal was to be eaten in a hurry, with clothes on, shoes on, staff in hand. That means they're waiting for God's deliverance to take them out of Egypt. Now, it's amazing, after 70 AD, in the destruction of the temple, there is no more lambs being slaughtered and eaten. But they still do the Passover or even the the Sabbath meals, and then the Passover, they still celebrate this, but it, there's no celebration with any roasted lamb, at least if someone's following uh, most of the Orthodox uh, Jews and how they do things today. So after the father blesses the third cup, uh, the family sings uh, part of, a, again, a hymn from Psalm 115 to 118. And then, of course, a third cup of wine is passed, and that is the cup of redemption. And, of course, back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, there's another promise connected to that, and the promise is this. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So the Lord promises them redemption, by God's design, God's going to redeem them by his own power and by his design. And so that third promise is, uh, is I will redeem. So the third cup is really the cup of redemption, the cup of salvation, the cup of deliverance. All right. And this was done very near midnight. So it's very late in the evening and it's midnight. All right. So there was 
a fourth part and an eighth stage to this festival, to this Passover meal. And there would be one final fourth cup of wine that was to be passed around and drunk. Uh, And, of course, then they were again to sing a final hymn from Psalm 116 to 118, and they were to then depart after that. And so this fourth cup would be called the cup of acceptance. Uh, In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Then I will take you for my people... And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so the fourth promise would be, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. So this this new renewed relationship with God is promised in that fourth cup, and that would be the end of the festival. Now, let's turn back to Mark. Now, why do I say all that? Because Jesus, in his preparing the Lord's table, does something very, very unusual. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 22, it is at this point, it is at stage, between stage 5 and 7, that Jesus in this uh, Passover ceremonial, that Jesus did something, and it says in verse 22, while they were eating, this is what he did. In verse 22, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. So, of course, this is very unusual. This has never happened before. Uh, And then, so Jesus actually transformed this last, this is called the Last Supper, because it was the last Old Testament Passover that actually had a lamb eaten at it, all right? This last Passover supper was translated into the New Lord's Supper, also referred to in Scripture as the Lord's Table, Communion, the Cup of Blessing, the Cup of the Breaking of the Bread. All these things are different places in Scripture. It's used in different ways or said in different ways. So this Last Supper becomes a new exodus for the people of God. And that's what we find here in this passage of Scripture, verse number 22. So Jesus interprets the elements to show his coming death as the new exodus. So Jesus himself was presiding over the Passover feast, and it was Jesus himself who gave out the elements to his disciples. The first element he passed out was while they were eating, he took some bread. So Jesus does something that, uh, again, is entirely unusual and new, and this new act is also eating and drinking, but the meal elements were only bread and wine. There was no lamb in Jesus' formula. And, of course, the reason why there is no roasted lamb of an animal is because in Jesus' main course, the reason why there's no lamb on the table before him is because Jesus is the lamb of God. 
in a sense, he was on the table. And he was presenting his body in that way. So the first element that he presents is the unleavened bread. Remember, unleavened or leavened indicates the spreading of evil and corruption and symbolizing the the evil influence of sin. Now, when referring to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, unleavened bread was representative of Jesus' sinless, pure, spotless life and body. In other words, Jesus, as the Scripture says, was without sin. He was the unblemished lamb of the Passover, but now he was a man, not an animal. Of course, there's no animals being offered anymore. So the bread that we partake of in the Lord's table once represented Exodus and the people being delivered out of the slavery of Exodus now represents the body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So the the new Exodus is through his death. He brings deliverance from sin's condemnation, its curse, its bondage, and redemption provides for us a standing before God that is without sin or unleavened. When we are standing before God in Christ, God does no, no longer sees our sin and the condemnation that sin is, uh, that should be upon us, but he sees that Jesus Christ took the condemnation. So Jesus Christ, being the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, is our substitute in place. So God sees us as unleavened, as clean, as without sin, with no condemnation. So by taking the bread and adding in verse number 22, take it, this is my body, Jesus completely departs from the script of the regular Passover meal. And Jesus says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. This is my sacrificial body. At the Last Supper, Jesus gives up his body for unworthy sinners, for unfaithful people, for the unrighteous, for the ungodly. That's why we have passages of scriptures like Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us while we got everything together and we were righteous. He died to us while we were yet sinning. And in our sinful condition, the sin that was passed onto us from Adam and the sins that we committed on our own, Jesus died for the unholy and the ungodly. That's who he died for, and that's you and I. So the disciples were to take take it, Jesus said, this is my body, and that means they, as well as us today, are to take in the death of Christ for ourselves and to appropriate it personally. To, In other words, to feed on him in your hearts of faith. See, this is the real food indeed, and, and it's this, that Christ's unconditional commitment is toward all who believe. He is committed to what he has done. No one can reverse salvation. Salvation is eternal. And so in Mark, in verse number 23, the next element that comes up, of course, is the fruit of the vine. 
All right, it says in verse 23, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. So Jesus, of course, passes the third cup of wine in this seventh stage, the sixth and seventh stage. And so remember, this cup of wine that we drink at the Lord's table is the third cup. It is the, of course, this third cup has become the Lord's cup, and that is the one we drink at the Lord's table, and the third cup has become the cup of communion, or the cup, again, of redemption, that Jesus saves us. It's a reminder of, of Jesus saving us, that his, his body and, of course, his blood are the things that become our, the man becomes our substitute and saves us. So Jesus took the cup and blessed it, and instead of this cup representing the blood of an unblemished lamb, it now represents his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God. And so Mark writes in verse number 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In fact, Luke says it like this, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So at the Passover meal when the Jews celebrated it, this, cup of, this third cup of redemption was drunk. And the only way for a family to escape was to put their faith in God's sacrificial provision. That was the animal, the lamb, the goat. You had to slay the animal and put the blood on the door as a sign of faith in God. And when justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the lamb. If you did accept this shelter, then, then death passed over you. You were saved only on the basis of faith in the substitutionary sacrifice. So now the cup at the Lord's table that had represented the lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost and the lentils now came to represent the blood of the lamb of God shed for the salvation of lost sinners, that his blood not just providing a covering, but a total washing away, a wiping away of all sin forever on our account. The Father sees the righteousness of Christ on our account. He sees the blood of Christ over our hearts. And so that no condemnation could come upon that person because of that. Um, and, so, and so then, again, it's only Christianity, true Christianity that follows the Bible, that will provide real salvation for people. There's no other place to find it except in Christ Jesus because there's no other sacrifice for sin except Christ Jesus, right? So if you don't come through him, doesn't matter how good you are in your lifestyle, it doesn't matter how moral you are or anyone else is, doesn't matter what you've done by way of good works, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, 
then you, your, his blood is not covering you, and he's not your substitute. Therefore, you have to pay for your own sin. And you have to pay for that sin eternally in a place called hell. All right, that's, that's the gospel uh, in Scripture, and there's no way to escape that. And so we see how special Jesus is, that the bread and the wine which is eaten reminds us that our salvation is achieved through Christ's death alone. And then, of course, his resurrection secures our salvation for all eternity. Because in, in the resurrection, the Father accepts Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. If he didn't accept it, we, we couldn't be saved, even, even though he died. But he did accept it. Because it was done according to Scripture and according to the will of God. So therefore, that the Passover was transformed into the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. So it is a meal, in a sense. Now, what is interesting is that Jesus does not, in the eight stages that I mentioned, he does not drink the fourth cup. And this is what he says. Look in our text in verse number 24. He said, and this is, and he said to them, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In verse 20. Six and verse 20, excuse me, what did I say? Verse 24. In verse 25, he says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the Lord promised that he would accept people, and he does, but there's an already not yet theological concept here that the context of the Passover was all important because it would be here in this event that Jesus reveals himself as the Passover lamb that is sacrificed, which through his death, he will inaugurate a new covenant in his own blood. And that's what he does. And as a result, Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, because he has done this, there is now a new covenant between God and us. And the new covenant makes us fit to approach God and to come into his presence and to live with him eternally. Jesus refers to the cup of wine, this cup of the new covenant in my blood. In so doing, he alludes to the blood of the old covenant found in Exodus 24 when the Sinai covenant had been agreed upon by the people And Moses then took the blood of the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and threw it on the people. He threw the blood on the people. So we come to a book like Hebrews, which has an incredible connection and explanation of the Old Testament. And we find passages of Scripture like in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 through 20, where it says... Uh, of the old covenant, therefore even the first covenant, that's the old covenant, is not inaugurated without blood. So even in the old covenant, when it was given through Moses, it had to be ratified, that covenant, or made uh, 
complete by the shedding of blood. For it says this in Hebrews, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself of the law and all the people saying this, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So the sprinkling of the blood was a ratification of the covenant in which Israel entered with Jehovah at Sinai. The blood ratified or confirmed the covenant that it was true and it was binding. So the the blood of calves and goats made people fit to approach God in the Old Testament. But the blood of slain beasts, in a very real way, is valueless. It only has value because it represented the blood of Christ. It represented what would come in the future. That means if Jesus did not die on the cross, all those Old Testament types and pictures of all those sacrifices would mean nothing. They would mean nothing. See, see, so Jesus brings it all together, and like it says in the book of Hebrews again, chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But it is not impossible for sin to be taken away if the Lamb of God takes away that sin and dies in the place of sinners. So God makes a a new covenant with us, and of course that covenant is found in the book of Jeremiah. It is a promise by God that uh, he would replace the old with the new. And if just by, you know, just listen to what it says in the covenant. It says, Behold, in Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So the Lord, again, in that new covenant, says something very Uh, He gives a promise. He says this is what he's going to do. And he really brings it to the place where he's heading towards this understanding of the fourth cup that you will be my people and I will be your God. See, that's the connection to that last particular cup. So something was missing, though, in Jeremiah's account of the new covenant. And what was missing there was the ratifying blood. The promise was 600 years away when Jeremiah wrote. Six long centuries later, Jesus, in an upper room, 
foretells his own death, and he hands his disciples the cup of remembrance or redemption, the third cup, and says in Mark chapter 14, verse 24, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of, of sin. So this is what was missing. Jesus' blood confirmed the new covenant promise that it is true and binding to all who believe. So this really led to forgiveness for the cancellation of sin and the acceptance of the sinner before God. And again, Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 22, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No one can come into the presence of God without a blood sacrifice. No one without being consumed and destroyed without being sent away from him. No one could do that. There's no man living ever who could ever do that. And of course, Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, And he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that's the first covenant, and he establishes the second. And then it says this, By this will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in other words, the old covenant, based on the Mosaic law, brought condemnation. It could not save us. It could only tell us what God requires for a person to approach God so they weren't, wouldn't be destroyed and judged. And of course, the new covenant, based on Jesus' blood, frees from all condemnation. In other words, the new exodus, we are delivered out from under the condemnation and the bondage and the slavery of sin and set free in Christ Jesus. So never again could could we be brought under that bondage. So Jesus, again, departs from the script in our Gospel of Mark uh, in the Passover feast by making an oath. An oath meant... You were making a covenant. And notice the oath, is how the oath is communicated. Again, in verse number 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So an oath, remember, was taken in the, in the Old Testament, in, especially in, in these contexts, very seriously. Um, and it was literally, these oaths that people took were literally marked by blood. In fact, this covenant was established uh, and sealed by killing an animal. When somebody made an oath in the Old Testament, by killing an animal, cutting it in half, and then you would lay the animal parts side by side, but enough to walk through them, and they would cut the animal in half. Of course, the blood would be coming out, and of course, they would walk through the animals that were cut in half while they are actually stating their oath of promise. So this action communicated a solemn relationship uh, 
of, of obligation between the person making the promise and the other party. It was binding. If you didn't fulfill the promise, then, of course, it would be like saying, cut me in half like these animals and kill me because I did not keep the promise. So in, in the, a very real sense, Jesus, is make, when he makes a covenant, it, it is a binding covenant. This covenant is with, his, is with his blood. If he does not, if he does not uh, deliver on his covenant, then in a sense, Jesus is saying that I should be cut in half and removed because I didn't keep my promise. But we know that didn't happen, and that won't happen because he's God, right? So he keeps his promise. So see, the picture should be very uh, vivid in our mind that when God says something, that, that he's going to do something, he definitely will keep his promise. And so what I've been saying here about this fourth cup is that as followers of Christ, we are awaiting a day when we will be in the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Father's kingdom, drinking the fourth cup, and that is the full cup of full assurance and acceptance by God, both in promise and then while we're there in reality. God has promised it to us, but someday it will be a reality. That's why that's why it's already given to us. We are accepted in the beloved, but we haven't sit down yet in the Father's kingdom uh, and sits there, sit there at peace with God, accepted by God, and that's where God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And no one would be, would be able to change that or destroy that. That will be a reality. So that's the promise that we have. We, pr- we have the promise that the, the Lord's table is really this uh, commemoration and proclamation of his death until he comes and until we someday drink the fruit of the vine at the meal, at a peace meal with Jesus and the Father in the kingdom of God. That's the promise that we have, and God has to keep that promise. Of course, until that time, we are to have us uh, really, as we look at ourselves, we are to proceed to the Lord's table with a solemn self-examination of ourself about what's going on in our life as we are living for the Lord. And then it also should be a celebration because it is a picture, again, of sitting down, having a meal with our Lord in whom we remain in peaceful fellowship now and forever. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. God has completely protected us, and he has done it by his death and his shed blood. No one could get at us. No one. That shows the love of God towards us. You know, I was reading that um, there was at one time a forest fire in the Yellowstone National Park. And the forest rangers, after the fire, have to go up and make an evaluation of what took place. 
some of the rangers began to trek up the mountain and survey the damage. And one ranger found a bird of which nothing was left but a carbonized, petrified shell covered with ash, huddled at the base of a tree. Somewhat, somewhat sickened by the eerie sight, the ranger, ranger knocked the bird over with a stick, and three little chicks scurried out of the hole from under the dead mother's wings. You know, when the blaze had arrived, the mother had remained steadfast and still, instead of running. And because she had been willing to die, those under the cover of her wings actually lived. So all real, life-changing love is costly, especially the love of the the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has has been sacrificed in our place and has taken our condemnation and has covered us with his blood in his death so that we can be set free, so that we can live, so we can be protected forever is, a, I think, a fitting illustration of, of what he's done. You know, and just recently my son Joshua just relayed a situation where he recently had to be in the DMV uh, the motor vehicles in Virginia, he says, where the waiting times are no- notoriously long. And this one man, after sitting for quite a long period of time, finally got up, jumped to his feet, and said, Finally, can anyone give me an amen? Because he was waiting for such a long time. Now, I thought, well, if that man can call for an amen, in such a a trivial situation, how much more should we call for an amen from, or I should call for an amen from all God's people. So can I call to you for an amen for these great truths that's been given to us and that we celebrate every first week of the month? And set that time aside. I don't ever want the Lord's table to become just something you do and don't think about it. I don't want that to happen. I really don't. And, it, and can it happen? Has it happened? Yes, it has. But don't let it happen. All right? Because when we come together, it is a very serious thing. Remember, the Lord only left us two ordinances. Baptism, which you do once, right? All right, if you get it right. And then secondly, uh, the Lord's table. That's it. So... If he left us those two things, then we must teach them, uh, take them very seriously and treat them with the utmost respect and holiness because that's what the Lord intended because that's what he left us to never forget the essential elements that saved your soul for eternity and that someday we have a promise that the Lord is still going to fellowship with us and be our God and we're going to be his people and we're not going to have all this trouble that we have in these bodies and in this world. All that will be gone, and we'll be there praising God, worshiping God, and doing everything else the Lord wants us to do, and it's going to be without sin, without distraction, without weaknesses, without you know 
failing health, without death, none of those things will be there. And so that's going to be a time that we all look forward to as believers. And all God's people did say what? What? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, the word of God is is just so uh, incredible as we break it apart and see it's how it relates to us. And, and Lord, how, how compassionate your heart is towards us. How long-suffering and patient you are with us. And Lord, to the extent that you went for us so we can be saved, I pray, Lord, that we'd never take that lightly. That it would be such a serious and sober matter in our minds that when we do prepare ourselves for the Lord's table that we actually would prepare before we got here and make ourselves ready and not be absent from it for some trivial worldly thing or fleshly thing. But Lord, make sure we're there, present, examined, ready, not only to, as a solemn ceremony, but as a celebration that we have something to look forward to that no one else has except the children of God. And I pray, Lord, others would see that someday who don't know you yet. I pray family members that we're praying for, neighbors that we're talking to, co-workers, I pray, Lord, that they too may come to see what you allowed us to see and know and that they too may come worship you uh, the way they ought to that they would believe in Jesus so they can have the blood applied to their hearts and consciences and be purified and clean and have entryway into your kingdom. I pray that for them and for, Lord, for us. Let us always be in the state of of saying amen in a very uh, sobering way. Thank you, Lord. We, We praise your name this morning, and we want to live for you. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing our last. <laughs>